When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Protest or riots? Hello and welcome to episode 33 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes... We'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, good, thanks, Dan. Um, you know, it's, it looked like football had kind of just quietened down a little bit, didn't it? And then along come the Man United fans. Um, so looking forward to getting into this week and chatting all things football and protest, mate. Absolutely. There's plenty of that chat for this week. That also means you're joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, how have you been this past week? Yeah, I've been pretty good. Obviously, Fulham, not exactly the greatest on the pitch. So happy to uh, take away from that with some talk of what's been going on off the pitch. Well, on the pitch, technically. I see, I see what you've done there, and I like it. And of course, last but certainly not least, is Palace fan Max. Max, I hope all is well with you, my friend. Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, similar to Matthew, um, as long as we're not talking about Crystal Palace, uh, uh, I think we'll be fine. And with everything that's been happening, that, that will definitely happen. There might be one question, but not much. I promise you that, Max. But anyway, before we get to that question and a whole lot more, I'll best do some social media bits first. I will be talking to the Abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce that we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. Check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on Real Football Pod to find that. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast if you use that platform. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And I need to mention my two content partners. For betting previews, go to better.com. For thought pieces and opinion, go to nowsport.com. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to linktree slash realfootballcast. Put a dot between the R and the E and you get 10 
podcast platforms to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to the show. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Well, we should be going to Old Trafford to talk about the latest chapter in that storied rivalry between Manchester United and Liverpool. However, things didn't go quite to plan. And although everyone has the right to protest, it's the crossing of the line, Cole, which ultimately becomes the biggest football talking points of the week. Yeah, that's the, that's the kind of problem, isn't it? You know, the, the protests are all great. And, and obviously, we're all behind kind of what some of these fans are protesting about. Um, you know, we might get into it at some point. But, you know, Spurs have got their own protest plan and coming up. But as you say, what we don't then want to happen is the, the minute those protests cross a line between you're protesting, but then violence starts kicking off. Unfortunately, it's going to be the violence part and all that bad stuff around it that's just going to get talked about. And then, unfortunately, in the midst of that, you just lose everything good that the protest can be about, you know. So it is one of those, isn't it? You know, every fan has got the right to protest. But what we don't want to see is that cross that line because, you know, unfortunately, it just loses all its value. Now, we don't know. I'm, sh- I'm sure there'll be lots of people who m- might have gone there purely for the fact they wasn't really interested about the protests, about the football. They just wanted an excuse to go there and kind of kick off and cause a bit of problems um, and, and, you know, get involved in, in, you know, just trying to wreck and break stuff. But it is a shame because, as I say, you know, I'm all for the protests and these people voicing their opinions. But unfortunately, it just loses everything. And they're not the sort of scenes that we want to see. And we don't really want to see games being cancelled because that just throws everything up in the air as well. So, you know, what started off looking like it was going to be something good and we would, again, just highlight where people are unhappy with these owners, suddenly by the end of it just turns into, well, you know, you've got these FUG fans who've just turned up causing problems. And unfortunately, ultimately, that, as you say, Dan, that's really the key points that are being spoken about now. And that wasn't what the protest main aim was. So, Matthew, we spoke last week about the placating of fans after this failed European Super League and how that, although it's a bit raw now, over the summer it might dissipate because you've only got to buy an expensive trinket or two and all of a sudden owners are great again because the new stars come to town. However, on the evidence of what we saw on Sunday, are things just a bit too raw at Manchester United for things to be forgotten? Yeah, I, I think that is the case. But then you sort of get into the, the argument. It's, it's, it's what Simon Jordan has been sort of talking about in recent days. Is You know, Manchester United have been placated, have been, you know, rewarded in a sense on, you know, on the monetary side. Because whilst, you know, the, the argument with the Cronkies say is they don't spend enough money. You know, you can't really say that about Man United because it was 75, I think, for Lukaku. Something rather extraordinary. Um, you think of Paul Pogba, how much they pay for Harry Maguire, you know, all that sort of stuff. They do spend money. And then for some reason, the argument is they're taking the money out of the club, which you know, in a real sense doesn't really affect the fans directly, as it were. So it is a bit weird on that sense. Um, but so, yeah, I don't think that this this sort of protest is going to go away because they've made their feelings known that, you know, if they're not happy with what the Glazers are doing and the Glazers are you know, spending the money, you know, it has been somewhat successful. They're now second in the Premier League, you know, pretty much assured of a Europa League final. That could mean silverware. You know, it's not going to it's not going to take them to re-sign Cristiano Ronaldo. Even if they do that, they're still going to be angry. So I think this, in this particular instance, this protest is, is far from over. 
Well, let's bring in Max then, because as Matthew alludes to, when you consider these protests are amongst a backdrop of largely frozen ticket prices over the course of a number of years, which is quite rare for a Premier League club, a substantial net spend, a club which is going to finish second in the Premier League bar a relative collapse in these last few weeks, and also potentially a Europa League trophy also. So does that make Sunday's actions rather unjust, or does the Super League actions blow all of Man United's ownership good grace that they've generated through those steps I've just mentioned out the water yeah it's, it's a bit tricky really isn't it because United might well um, finish the season as you say with pretty much being a success on the pitch I mean you know they've they, the Glazers can't be accused of not spending money with all the kind of big signings they've made um, recently you know they've really backed Solskjaer um, obviously Maguire was like 80 million you know Sanchez um all of that, all of those big signings, you know, they might well finish second in the Premier League uh, behind a, a rampant Man City. And that is, you know, a, a decent result considering the other, the strength of the other teams, you know, considering how far they were of Liverpool last season to have kind of usurped them to be ahead of Chelsea, to be ahead of all the other teams below them. And uh, yeah, and they might win the Europa League as well. But I don't think this is an on-pitch matter. And really, I don't even think it's a money matter. I think it's more just a they feel like the club is kind of being taken away from them because the Glazers, right, have got no connection to Manchester at all, really. They're just kind of American businessmen and they see it as a, a bit of a commercial opportunity. Um, and, you know, they're very good with the money side of things. Like Ed Woodward is excellent at the commercial side or was excellent, I should say, when he eventually leaves at the commercial side of things and making Manchester United a kind of global brand and franchise. And I know fans will hate me using that word, but that you know, the the way that the Glazers talk about the club like a franchise, it just feels like um, for United fans that the club is being turned into a bit of a cash cow and, you know, and, and, and things are just kind of being taken away from them. And I think the, the, the Super League was maybe the last straw for them because kind of ticket prices kind of gradually going up over a long over a long period. I know you mentioned the, there were price freezes, but kind of generally that it's trending upwards, right? Um, you know, the, the stuff about the £15 per game um, when to, to watch a game on like pay-per-view when um, a couple of months ago when, when things were happening like that. I, yeah, I just think there's, there's a general feeling that the club is being taken away from their kind of roots, which is a lot of what, um, of what kind of sparks that, that, that trend where they're using like the yellow and green um, colours, like the, the, the flares and flags and stuff in yellow and green from um, the, the team uh, back in the olden days, Newton Heath, that then became Man United, who played in yellow and green. It's like they want to get back to their origins, right, which is kind of a working class sport. Um, and, and obviously Manchester kind of being a, traditionally a bit of a working class area um, city. They're, they just feel like it's kind of slowly, slowly, slowly being taken away from them. And I don't necessarily think it's just a Euro, uh, European Super League thing, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, you mentioned green and gold or green and yellow, and I'm going to stay with you then, Max, because you just intimated that it does seem that, although this is kind of like a Trojan horse with the European Super League, it's that that's the kind of reason that we're all seeing, but it's allowed this anti-Glazer sentiment to creep back in. When you consider the green and gold demos and protests was kind of around 2010, there's been a relative amount of harmony in the last decade, but now it's just all blown up again, hasn't it? Yeah, very much, very much. And yeah, it, it, I think it was in, in, in 2010. And actually, the, we've actually seen United since then kind of introduce more 
former players and stuff, people who kind of under, understand the club and the, and the culture and the ethos a bit more. So obviously Solskjaer is a, is a legendary former player. They've got a lot more coaches now. So, you know, Butt was there, but he's now left. But then Fletcher and Carrick are involved in like the coaching of the club and, and are kind of pretty high up. And so I think they are kind of trying to, the owners are trying to appease the fans by kind of getting more people in there who understand the club. But a lot of fans are just have had this anti-Glazer sentiment for a long time. And um, Gary Neville raised the point yesterday that the teams who seem to be most angry with their owners over the European Super League stuff are Man United and Arsenal. And it's because those teams have historically, um, and you know, up to the present, not been happy with their owners. Arsenal fans don't generally like Kroenke and United fans don't generally like the Glazers. And so... Obviously, the European Super League stuff was, you know, a kind of shock for, you know, maybe uh, City fans or Chelsea fans. But when the majority of the fan base is already kind of railing against these American owners and their perceived, you know, greed and lack of care about the club, you know, how often do you see um, Stan Kroenke at an Arsenal game? You know, never. <laughs> Once in a blue moon. And... And I think fans really just feel a bit alienated and kind of sidelined and ignored um, by these owners. And because it's been such a strong kind of anti-owner sentiment for, you know, the last decade or even longer, the European Super League stuff just kind of adds more fuel to the fire. And yeah, I, 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 was, um, I, was, I was reading something yesterday which was saying there are more protests planned. And United... And the Premier League should be really worried because it might get to a situation where every single home game, there's going to be thousands of fans outside the team hotel blocking the team buses from getting to the stadium. And, you know, the police are going to have to be beefing up security big time around Old Trafford because there are going to be people demonstrating there and setting off flares. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And United might not get any more home games played this season. You know, it might get to that kind of thing. And... In that situation, I do wonder whether that will force the owners to, 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 to maybe sell up, although I doubt it. Yes, I don't think it's going to be an issue in isolation. And as you say about teams in the big six and United and Arsenal fans sort of leading that more aggressive charge, Cole, you mentioned Tottenham protests. And it's interesting that from an edict point of view, there is a lot of... Sometimes it's sitting on the fence and sometimes you sort of flip-flop between in and out. Not you personally, but collectively as you and I are Tottenham fans and everyone else, but do you think that Super League move has also been the straw that's broken the camel's back from a Tottenham point of view? And now a lot of people are thinking, we have seen Enix truest colours, and protest or not, you know, now's the vehicle to get them out also. Yeah, I think so. I think if, if you look at it from a Spurs perspective, I think there's a lot of good that Enoch have done, haven't they, at the club, which, you know, if you're balanced, you kind of do go, well, you know, it's not all been bad, you know, because off the pitch, they've turned the club into this global brand, um, which obviously needed to happen. You know, we've had the new stadium, the new training facilities, which are all great. I think the problem is you've kind of been sold a dream as to why certain things haven't happened on the pitch to, to, to get to this place. In selling that dream, it was that. But once we get here, you'll see us take off, and this will allow us to suddenly become, you know, we'll we'll be able to be up there with the superpowers in football. Um, and obviously, it hasn't worked out that way on the pitch. And, and ultimately, fans will judge their clubs based on what's happening on the pitch in the majority of cases. And I think, given you know 
bringing Jose in was a massive divider for a lot of fans, wasn't it? You know, we know there were some who were happy he was in, but there were a lot of the fan base that wasn't. Then you've had, you know, the toxic feeling around him being manager and the way the club's been playing, um, not delivering the way we should this season, you know, certain results and, and things looking like the club is, you know, on the pitch at least going backwards massively. Then, obviously, you put in the fact that then the Super League comes round. Um, and I think it is, you know, I think this is the point where most Spurs fans now, I think even those who were kind of, you know, as you say, Dan, on the fence and, and slightly pro it, have come to this conclusion now that, well, actually, I think that's tipped me over the fence and I now want these guys gone from the club because it's quite clear that, you know, these owners don't give a don't give a you know don't give a shit about the average fan and that and and they'll basically do what they want with the club and fans ultimately you know will sit there and go well without without the fans the club is nothing um and i think as you say i think the super league given the season we've had has been finally the piece that's made a lot of people go no that's it these owners we want them out you know we've sat around waiting for a long long while you know as I always say you know I always joke to people you know at what point are we starting our next five-year project um, and being asked to be patient because um, we've gone through so many of those projects and, and never reached the end of them before a new one starts and I think that's just the, the feeling now that a lot of Spurs fans have they don't see the fact that anything's going to change drastically going forward. And there's now a massive movement to say, no, we want to go and protest and say that we don't want these owners running the club. And again, I think, like as Max said earlier, you know, we know Daniel Levy's there and, and he's part of Enid. But obviously you've got Joe Lewis. And I think a lot of people are saying, you know, you never see him either. So I think a lot of hate goes towards that because you've just got this guy who's running the club, who's sitting in the Bahamas, and basically using it as a toy just to get themselves more money uh, and treat the fans the way they treat the fans. So I think, yeah, the Super League is what's tipped it over the edge. And we've seen now there's been a massive swell of support for, for that protest that's going to happen on the 15th. Well, what you just described, I think, is the exact situation I find myself in. That if you had a, I don't know, a swingometer that went from Enoch out to Enoch in, one end to the other, if you put it in the middle, I'd be on just the correct side of Enoch in beforehand I think you know if you added up all their pluses and minuses for everything they've done you think actually they're not all that bad but now they played their final hand really and you think I don't really want them part of this club I think they need to go now whether they can go or whether someone else stumps up three billion and whether the devil is better that we don't know you know these are questions we still need to answer but for me I think they need to be rid of the club whether these protest movements can work again I think it all comes down to money rather than voice, but we have to start somewhere. And Matthew, in terms of Man United, somewhere, anywhere, in terms of communication, because it doesn't exist between the Glazers and any form of supporters' trust. So is that the key principle in all of this, that because United fans feel not only is their club being taken away, but they've been completely shut out in all of this? Yeah, I think I think that does play that does play a part in it as well. Because the owners are, you know, abroad, yeah, it, it does take take away the lines of communication because even you know because if you look at spurs they've got you know daniel levy is you know in england he's, he's often at games roman abramovich at chelsea is often the games i i have i have seen the the arab owners of uh, manchester city at games i don't know if they have been this season because of protocol and everything but i have seen i have seen them at games in the past so i think that is kind of part is they don't feel connected to the club you know in that sort of way and as a, you know and as such 
it's it's hard for them to communicate their views and whatever it is to the to to the board so these are the only options that they have they you know it might be easier for them to you know if you take if you take the example of what they do, you know they know where Ed Woodward lives, the Man United fans. That's why they turned up as his house, you know, a couple of months ago. Obviously for the wrong reasons, and what they did was terrible. We're not condoning, but at least there they know they they have an option, they have an avenue to communicate with him. They don't really have it with the Glazers, so this might be the only method that they have in the future is to sort of get their name and to get the images and everything around the world where they know that the Glazers are going to see them. Okay, Matthew, I want to stay with you because now I want to discuss Sky's role in all of this. So there'll be questions for all three of you, but Matthew, I'll go to you first. So when you look at Sky and their behaviour or their MO in the past couple of weeks, is there now slightly a mixed message coming from them? Because first they're up in arms that this closed shop is going to be formed and it's a closed shop that they wouldn't be invited to because any potential broadcasting deal would not involve them. So obviously that's when they're worried. And now on Sunday... They're sort of up in arms about protesters ruining their weekend from a broadcasting point of view after protesting about the same thing that they were trying to get fans to mobilise against only weeks ago. So are the waters a little bit muddied here? Yeah, it is. I think Sky is sort of, you know, picking their arguments because they don't want to be, you know, on the they don't want to be they don't want to be on the side that is against the fans, in effect. Because they know as soon as, you know, Sky Sports come out and say, Oh yeah, we you know, to go back to the example, you know, we are for the Super League, say, for instance, they know the fans are going to switch off and say, right, no, we're not paying you money anymore. So that's it. I know there's been a sort of vibe and a mini protest from various people. About, oh, don't subscribe to Sky and, and BT and all this lot, you know, trying to take the money out of the game, as it were. But I think in this sort of sense, they don't, they would, something as big as this would just be catastrophic for them on, on a grand scale. So they're trying to keep on the right side of it. And they, that may mean, you know, Perry, you know, cherry picking their arguments as it were. So yeah, it, it does kind of get diluted their message when you consider, you know, what they've said in previous weeks. Carl, in terms of Graham Souness's comments, what did you make really? Because at one point he's banging on about a beer can could have killed somebody and you're sort of thinking, well, yeah, I guess it could have, but kind of not really reading the room properly. And, you know, it's kind of hard to sort of say a man of his age should be put out to pasture, but it's kind of not quite getting fundamentally the principle of all that happened. Yeah, and from the man who went and basically put Turkey in the war by <laughs> planting right. a flag in the middle of the pitch. Exactly. <laughs> not the most peaceful, <laughs> the most innocent character there's ever been, is there? Um, yeah, it, he, he's interesting with Sunis, isn't it? Because there's sometimes he can say stuff that you go, yeah, okay, yeah, I can see where he's coming from. But there are a lot of times where a lot of the stuff he says, you kind of think, well, yeah, you know, you are talking like someone who, who's, they say, it's hard to get out from that stage, isn't it? Of, you know, it does, football doesn't work like that anymore, Graham. You know, yeah, you, you're looking back on a day where you might have been able to do certain things like that back in the day. Um, They've got their own opinion, haven't they? I, I kind of think Sky, at the end of the day, are starting to push their own narrative on this now and trying to make themselves, you know, the beacon of the saviours of football. Um, when you still sort of sit there and think, well, maybe we should all turn our attentions to them next because, you know, they're not innocent in any of this. Um, 
I just think, yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of times where you listen to him on there now and some of his views and just think, mm, I, I don't think this game is for you anymore, or certainly not as a pundit on TV, because there are people now who, who are more forward thinking um, and probably deserve more airtime. Um, I just did like the piece where someone said that it was Pogba in there throwing the beer can up, trying to hit him, but... Yeah, he'll still be around, won't he? And he'll look to say those sorts of things. But I did find it, as I say, coming from a guy that used to do some of the stuff he did, it was a little bit like, OK, Graham, you know, those in glass houses probably shouldn't throw stones here. Um, but he'll carry on doing what he's doing, isn't he? I would sort of think that, you know, next season, I'd like to see a little bit less of him. Well, I mean, to be honest, he's reduced to renter quote, which has always kind of been his role anyway. But when you look at Roy Keane sitting in a chair next to him and doing it much better and more profound, sorry, more profound, more concise, you kind of think Graham's kind of like your rambling uncle. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's enough now. Like, just kind of, as you say, usher him to one side. But Max, I guess the real figureheads of this guy, mobilisation of coverage and all this kind of stuff is Messrs Neville and Carragher. So when you look at their comments or listen to those comments also, they're not quite towing the company line. Now, does that put themselves in a difficult position, especially Neville, when he's in the past been rather mute about any Glazer issues in the past? It's only really the last year when he's put his head above the parapet and said that actually all's not well from the ownership. Yeah, yeah, he, he has kind of seemed to be a bit of a of a of a Glazer ally in the past, and he's kind of speaking up now. Um, I, you know, I can't really speak for what kind of agenda he's got, but I think most football fans generally would be on the side of Neville and Carragher who are kind of saying that it's the fans right to protest and all of that um because yeah I mean soon <laughs> it was a bit like um remember when uh, Ashley Williams kicked the ball at Van oh, yeah. <laughs> yard away and, and Ferguson was saying he could have been killed now been killed. I, you know I'm not condoning the the kind of the the nastier aspects of the protest which is the you know throwing flares and and like throwing bottles up and stuff like that but because, you know, it's not really the pundits that have got anything to do with it. It's not like they were throwing it at the Glazer family box or something, which, you know, while you can't condone it, at least you would have understood it. I'm not sure what, you know, Graham Sooners and, and Micah Richards have got to do with um, <laughs> the United fans' anger. So I, I don't think they're the right target. But, I mean, it was just uh, probably a little bit over the top from Sooners, really. But, yeah, Neville and Carragher, I think they're, they, they seem to be judging the kind of the, the the fan mood and the zeitgeist quite well, and it was interesting to see Carragher, yeah. who's obviously a Liverpool, um, you know, icon, and, and United fans don't traditionally have the best relationship with him. Obviously, them being such kind of big historic rivals, um, it was interesting to to see Carragher come out and defend the United fans and say, you know, it's a lazy criticism from people like Sunes saying, oh, you know, it's about on pitch matters and it's because they're behind Man City and stuff like that when there is actually a historical opposition to the Glazer family that is not just based on, you know, the last two weeks or the last season, you know, being behind City and not winning titles and stuff like that. Right, let's actually talk about some football now because, Cole, Man City have had more than one hand on the Premier League trophy for a considerable while now and were it not for events at Old Trafford a day later, it may have finally been two. Yeah, it is just a matter of time, isn't it? I think, you know, no matter even what happened at Old Trafford, they are now just on, on the kind of victory parade, aren't they, seeing these last few games out? Um, I don't think they'll have any problems. If it wasn't this week, it'll be the week after. Um, there's no threat to them. They can actually kind of just relax and play some really good football and see these last few games out. But again, they played really well. 
Um, and when you consider, obviously, that they've gone and got themselves kind of in a great position for the second leg of the Champions League, I think the nicety now for them must be that they can actually just make sure they don't do anything stupid and focus on that. If they get through this second leg of the semi-final, then they'll know they can just kind of be in cruise control rest key players when they need to and just make sure they're ready for that final but another good performance this weekend um i think the biggest question now will be what will they do in the summer around bringing in a striker because i when you consider the sort of season they've had without you know probably having a real front man to kind of keep them going and score score the goals that you probably could score in that side and they've done what they've done the fear for everyone else must be if they go and get themselves a real key striker in the summer, then I think everyone's playing catch-up already next season. Um, but, you know, it's great for City. They've been worthy champions and it's a shame for them that it probably wasn't this weekend, but at least they've got no fear that it won't happen. As I say, they're just on the victory parade and we've got to give them massive credit because at the start of the season, the way things were going, we certainly didn't see them putting in the run that they have now and being the sort of side that are finishing the season. Well, of course, if you listen to one of these earlier episodes, I don't know, September, October, we weren't quite dismissing them, but they weren't clicking and it was kind of just going through the motions and I think as you say Carl the fact that they could make eight changes at the weekend with tonight in mind that being Tuesday if you're listening just goes to show how one side of this top race has been and that's such a luxury that if they get past PSG then they can coast to the final day of the season and be really fresh for the Champions League final which is going to be a huge benefit but Matthew I know you had a theory a couple of weeks ago about City looking to promote Jesus as their number one striker do you think that's still true and if they haven't got something else up their sleeve in terms of a big, big striker, who do they then get as their number two? I do still think I do still think there is an element that they are going to have to rely on. Again, not through choice, but through circumstance because of the way that you know the global, you know, finances have completely gone out of the world of football right now. Like in any other summer, a, a one hundred fifty million pound bid for Harry Kane, for instance, would make sense. But given the way that money's gone out of the game, you think maybe, probably not. So I do still, I do still think there is the chance that Gabriel Jesus does take that role. If not, I think they will probably go for. I don't think they'll go for a big name. I think they'll try and go for a cheaper, experienced name, similar to, but not exactly saying, you know, like a Falcao or an Ibrahimovic. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head who would be the... They don't grow on trees anymore, though, do they? Can't, there's not they... really an, another version of those. I think the two you've mentioned, what else is left? Lewandowski won't make that switch. Aguero is also one of them. There's very, very slim pickings in that kind of role. So it's quite hard to make that kind of purchase, do you not think? Yeah, my only... But again, is Cavani out of contract at Man United? That's just another name. I... Again, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I, and there's all, there's also been the name Danny Ings has been thrown around. I'll believe that. I'll believe that when I see it, but I can sort of see that. Given the way Southampton are, you know, if you put 20 million to them, would they say, yeah, I reckon maybe, but it may, it may take 30. So I don't think it's going to be a big Haaland, Kane, Lewandowski, who's the other name, Mbappe sort of name. Benzema, you could sort sort in that crowd. I don't think it's going to be one of them those names. I think it's going to be either a very experienced veteran or very or relatively cheap alternatives, such as a Danny Ings. 
wonder if they'd go for Kletchi and Nacho and activate that buyback clause. That's another theory for another day. But Max, if you were Pep Guardiola, would you hang on to Sergio Aguero? Because I know everyone's starting to make a case of, oh, he must be mad. Why is he letting him go? But are people also getting a bit misty-eyed that he just scored against Crystal Palace and thought, well, actually, there's still a striker here. But then really, if you look at the, the whole season, he has had a lot of injury worries. So you can kind of make a case for him departing at the same time. Um, I think he can. I think he can. Um, and while he is still a good player, you know, I reckon maybe Silva or Toure could have done a job, you know, a decent job um, if they had stayed one more season at City. But I think to kind of keep that regeneration going and to keep people there who are in the kind of the prime in their careers, I think it's probably the right decision. Now, he's obviously a fantastic finisher, as we saw against Palace. It was a great goal, really, really you know, natural, instinctive, fantastic finish. Um, but it's just about whether you can get him on the pitch enough to make those sort of finishes. And I don't think you can. And if you are going to give um, Jesus a chance to be number one, then, you know, potentially you could say you could keep him for another season. But uh, I, I just think that they'll want, that you know, they'll want next season to, to either get in a number one striker who's going to play ahead of both him and Aguero, uh, Jesus and Aguero anyway, or they're going to get a number two who's going to kind of cut his teeth under Jesus. And if you have Aguero there still, you're kind of preventing that development and that and that game time. So I, I can't see it happening. But I mean, yeah, what a great player. And it shouldn't take anything away from what he's done at City. But Carl, what have you made of Raheem Sterling as of late? He's certainly a lot cooler in terms of performance compared to the first few months of the season. So does he have to worry about his City future at all? Yeah, he, I mean, he, he certainly hasn't had the best of the second half of the season, has he? Um, I mean, he still managed to tear us, you know, apart and cause us quite a few problems in the final, didn't he? But he, he does need to find a new, another gear and, and just raise that game because, you know, he, he was prolific at one point, wasn't he, a season or so ago, you know, constantly on the score sheet, looking really dangerous. And one of their key players where he's, he's second half of the season... I think you find he has obviously dropped down that pecking order a little bit and wouldn't be one of the first names on the team sheet. And that'll be a slight concern for him because, you know, when you're playing for a club like City, you know, you've got levels that you need to play to because that is a club that can bring in players that if you're not going to perform, they will bring in someone who can take your place and who will perform. Um, so he's had a little bit of a dip, but... Yeah, I wouldn't say it's disastrous for him. I, I, I don't think City will be looking to get rid of him anytime soon. But I think for a personal note, he's got to try and look to just raise his game a little bit more, get some better consistent performances. Like I say, I thought he was really good against us in the League Cup final. Um, you know, he caused us massive problems with his, you know, twisting and turning. And that's the sort of performances he needs to start putting in on a more regular basis. And obviously... You know, a, a dip with the Euros coming isn't the greatest time to have a dip in form, given the sort of players that there are at the moment who, who Gareth can pick from. So I think he will want to just try and, like, you know, pick his performances up, pick his levels up, get back on the score sheet more regularly. Um, and I think he still has a good future at Man City. And, and I don't think they'll be looking to replace him. Um, that is if he can pick those levels up. If he can, if, you know, if, if he suddenly starts a next season the way he's finished this season or, or has been playing recently then I think you've obviously got Pep might start being start to look and think maybe time has come for you for yourself as well and I need to look for a more long-term replacement but I think he'll be all right he just you know needs to get more goals get back on that score sheet there's still a good player in there 
Now, Matthew, in the list of Guardiola City title successes, where does this one go down for you? Is it more impressive than the hyper-dominance of 100 points, 98 points? Because, arguably, he's made better use of more difficult tools on offer. Is that a fair assessment? Where do they all rank? Ooh, that's a bit of a tough one. I... I, I don't think you I don't think you can ever say it I I can't I can't put anything above 100 points okay. personally I just, just that achievement on its own like and the fact that you know Liverpool went so close to doing it just shows how hard it is to get that extra I mean it may not look like much it's an extra one or two but to actually get to 100 just so impressive so I I can't put that I can't put this season above the 100 season and in all honesty, I can't really put it above the the ninety eight one where he was you know chased down by Liverpool to the last day of the season when they had ninety seven or ninety six or what it was, just because there hasn't really been that much of a, of a challenge this season from them. You know, it, it it's not been it's not been a total procession as the as the one hundred season was, but it just hasn't really felt all that significant to me. You know, even with the the struggles that they had at the start of the season. I just once it got to December, January, you, you knew what was going to happen. So it just hasn't really felt that special, even you know, as you say, even with the tools he's been dealt and trying to do it on multiple fronts. Because with the Carabao Cup, FA Cup semi-final, and now Champions League probably final as well. So even with that, I just can't. It's it's an impressive one, but I just can't put it above the other two. No, that's absolutely fair enough. I mean, when you rack up that many points, it is a very impressive way to win a title and I think it's a different kind of impressive but as you say on that scale not quite near now Max this is your contractual obligation it's your Palace question of the week in terms of the game they gave a good account of themselves I mean they kept City at bay whether that's from City missing chances but really that game was gone in the space of 60 seconds yeah it was a bit of a weird one right because um, it was the first time so United didn't have a, uh, sorry City didn't have a, a, a shot on target until their their two goals and I think when when we went in at half time at nil now I was thinking this is pretty much a perfect performance we've restricted them to very few chances we've kind of looked lively on the break we might maybe go and go and kind of nick a draw if we get a goal on the break because you always feel like City are going to score and you know it's the first time that City had gone in nil nil at half time or hadn't scored at, um, in the first half for about 20 games so we've done really well, and at, at the risk of sounding, um, you know, a, a bit, a bit like, like kind of foolish, um, we were doing really well until they until they scored twice. You know, <laughs> we were we. It was a really good performance, and then they just basically had two half chances in two minutes, scored both of them, and the game's gone. Like it's over, and from that point, you can't really do anything. Um, but you know, our, our season won't be judged. Uh, you know, against results against the likes of Man City. Um, but, you know, it is kind of frustrating because you don't want to get into the habit of being kind of plucky losers, but who are still losers. Um, you know, last season, um, when safety was pretty much secure, um, after after we came back from, from that uh, COVID break in Project Restart, Palace kind of played all right in their last seven or eight games. And they still lost seven and drew one of their last eight games and that just really isn't acceptable and I can I'm a bit I'm a bit worried because I can see something similar happening again now because Palace are kind of all but mathematically safe 
But, and you know, we've, we've got a relatively tricky run in, not as tricky as last year, to be fair. We played like all six of the top six um, in that run of eight games at the end of last season. This year's run it isn't so tricky, but nonetheless, I can see us um, kind of getting getting into the habit of losing, kind of playing all right, but still contriving to lose, you know, finding a way to lose. And that is a bit of a concern, to be honest. Well, I think a lot is going to come down to how you finish, who you appoint and how you start next season. So I think the last four games of this season and the next four games of next season are going to be a very integral part of how Palace play for the next few months. But, Carl, I know you need to be off in a few minutes, so your last bit of action for today, Spurs. A comfortable win. Now, Spurs being Spurs and the fan base, everyone's getting giddy that top four's back on. I think you've got to remember, it was only Sheffield United at home, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, like I say, any, any Spurs fan who's still got hopes of top four, just, you know, I, I would say book yourself a doctor's appointment massively <laughs> as soon as possible because, yeah, it, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, it's typical Spurs, isn't it? You know, the week after a game where we needed a brave performance and an attacking performance, um, they, they put one in and then suddenly it's like, oh, you know, this makes up for the cup final and, oh, yeah, you know, see, things are picking up and it, it just doesn't wash, you know. Again, it's that same old thing. You know, yes, we're still in with a shout, but when you look at the way results go and the mentality of the club we've got Leeds this weekend and it certainly wouldn't surprise me if going away to Leeds proves too much and we don't get a result there if we suddenly did and the next, you know a couple of teams slip up the very next game where there is that thing of like right Spurs can get a result here and they can go four we just won't do it I, I just don't think we've got the quality to get through you know Sheffield United are a team that are gone now you know they're just all about next season you know they're just seeing games out now there's no incentive for them um, you know yeah it was great to see Gareth get a hat trick um, you know a score nil a four nil scoreline looks great. But again, yeah, it's Sheffield United. The same old problems will be there. And, and I think the minute we face a team that, that has a bit more quality, those failings will come to the surface again and we'll be in trouble. But yeah, any, like I say, any, anyone who's got hopes of top four, just, you know, set your expectations now. It's not going to happen. They may get, you know, six. I think where they're possibly going to finish could be where they are now. Or I could even see Liverpool, you know, if Liverpool win their game in hand, then we'll be seventh. And and that's where I see a sixth or seventh come the end of the season. We just won't have enough and, and it'll be have been left too late to try and get top four. Yeah, I echo those sentiments exactly, Carl. So, Carl, as I said, obviously you need to be off. So, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. And hopefully we'll catch up next Tuesday, mate. Yeah, cheers, Dan. Appreciate that. Top man. Right, Matthew, Max, don't go anywhere because you've still got 20 minutes to go. So, just going to stay on the... Spurs topic for a little bit longer. Matthew, bail watch. Is this the optimum time for him to be hitting that stride of form from an international point of view? Yep, absolutely. I mean, if you can keep it going for the next couple of weeks, <laughs> absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, as much as I think there's the way there's the Wales factor, I think there is also some talk that needs to be done about, you know, hitting form. Every single goal he's scoring is just making Zidane and Perez just think let's just add another zero to that price tag sort of thing. So I think if I, I know his, his, he said he's going to sort out his future, you know, after the, you know, the, after the Euros and he still wants to play for Real Madrid and all that sort of stuff. I do think there is a sentiment and I think there is a decent chance that he comes back to Tottenham next year, hopefully wearing a proper number rather than number nine. Um, 
So it is sort of causing Spurs a few problems on that front because every single goal he scores is gonna is gonna drive up the asking price and it could get to a stage where Spurs, you know, as I mentioned, because of you know the, the money that's gone out of football, they may not be they may not be able to afford him. So it's to catch twenty two in some in some circumstances. Yeah, I didn't even think of it like that actually. That you kind of you want Bale to do well, but then again, if he starts really doing well, then price himself out of another move. So it is a balancing act for him and the club. But Max, is there not an element of irony in all of this that had Jose Mourinho played Gareth Bale just a bit more in the Premier League, he'd probably still be in a job right now? Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that's going to be the, the eternal unknown, isn't it? Because when Bale... Now, I understand that Bale took a long time to get up to the, the kind of the physical rigours of the Premier League. That's completely understandable given how little he had played at Real Madrid in the kind of in the previous season so I do understand you kind of bed him in slowly you don't want to just chuck him into the Premier League playing 90 minutes you know three times a week and then he gets injured for six months I do understand that but but then he kind of had that little slight run in the team where he scored a couple of goals and then was swiftly out again and then kind of came back and looked amazing against Crystal Palace and and you know scored a really nice goal and looked quite quite confident and on form and then played a couple of games and got a bit of momentum and then quickly he just kind of got axed again. And I feel like that was maybe, well, I'm obviously speculating, that might have been a bit of a, a kind of a power play from Mourinho to show that, you know, no player is bigger than the, is bigger than the team. And, you know, Mourinho wants to show that he, he's willing to put kind of hard workers like Lucas Moura first, as opposed to people who are maybe a bit more talented, um, like Bale, but who maybe don't put in the kind of defensive effort which Mourinho requires. Um, but... He's he's obviously got the talent, Bale. You know, we saw that he's his left foot is probably the best in the in the Premier League. I don't know if anyone wants to contradict me on that. Um, but he he's just he's just such a class player. Now, again, it is Sheffield United who are already down, and it was kind of a bit of a it was a bit of a training game for Spurs. There wasn't really any intensity in it. Um, and the real test for Bale, the kind of litmus test, will be against other teams in the Premier League. It won't be against the likes of Sheffield United because, you know, I, I could probably have a decent uh, go at having a uh, score and a hatcher against Sheffield United. Um, so how he does over the rest of the season will kind of dictate, you know, his plans for the rest of the year. But if he does, you know, bang between now and the end of the season and scores four more goals... I think Mourinho will be left with a bit of egg on his face. Yeah, when it comes to Bale, there's a bit of stat padding about his numbers, but at the same time, you can only score what's in front of you. He's not really been playing in those big games to be really trusted, so it's chicken and egg to a certain degree, but I don't know. I mean, I think really he should have just been played November onwards, get to that fitness rather than wait to be fit and try and be shoehorned into the team. It's not worked, and that's obviously the fallout with Mourinho being out of a job. But Matthew, in terms of the game itself, from a Sheffield United point of view, what did you make of John Fleck's stamp on Giovanni Lo Celso? How much intent did you think there was in such a movement? And did you think the Blades midfielder should have been sent off for such a ill act? I think I think it's a tricky one Ooh. because, it, again, it's one of those... It's hard to judge intent in, the, in that situation. And again, if you slow it down and even if you sort of watch it at real speed... There's not a lot that, in my mind, there's not a lot that John Fleck can do. And also, think of it this way. Is there any really any reason to do it? Like, you know, John Fleck in a side that's already been relegated against Tottenham, you know, not exactly arrive or anything. You know, if we'd have seen it in the old firm game, you know, and, you know, player X had done it to player Y on the other team, 
you might be able to make the argument. But I just can't see in that situation and given what goes on, looking at the footage, I personally can't definitively say, yes, he intended to do that. So in this world of, oh, a bit of a grey area, you know, definitive, enough to overturn, as it were, I think it was probably the right decision. Uh, He probably deserved not to be sent off in this situation. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, you can't prove intent, really, can you? You can only surmise that you think it was intentional, but I think, as you say, it's Sheffield United, the bottom of the league. What does he gain from stamping on the Celso's head? Unless he's got a real nasty streak that's just the red mist has come over, which I don't think happened. So let's move on. But, Max, in terms of Sheffield United, Paul Heckingbottom is the manager, the interim manager at the moment, and it's reported that he's part of a five-man shortlist to take the job full-time. Now, whether he's done enough to get that job can be argued. With that said, do you feel that Sheffield United just need to have a clean slate, not appoint someone from within, from this wilder era, just start again in August and make sure they get the right man rather than just sort of trying to continue the legacy, which isn't really working anymore? Yeah, well, I I think it's kind of a a bit of a balance, really, because Wilder laid a lot of kind of groundwork and and foundations which should um, serve Sheffield United well in the in the future, you know, the formation and the kind of the way that they play and and, and their the kind of committed attitude and, and all of that. Um, although, you know, that, that attitude has maybe been missing at points this season. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, you've got to strike a bit of a balance, really, because you kind of don't want to lose the, um, the Sheffield United way of playing from that got them promoted and then from last season, which got them to, you know, top half in the Premier League, I think. Um, so potentially what they might do is get a new manager, but maybe with Heckenbottom as a coach or assistant manager or something like that. And I know managers tend to bring their kind of their own coaching staff with them. Um, but I think it would probably be be prudent to have Heckingbottom around in some kind of advisory or coaching role so that you still have that kind of connection um, with someone who... Um, who, who has been there before and kind of understands the club and has a bit of knowledge about the players and the formation and you know how, how they work and that kind of thing but as you say also kind of maybe getting a bit of a clean slate from the the, the write-off that has been this season and starting again in the championship next season yeah it's going to be a difficult balancing act I think you're right in the sense they might need some continuity and I think Heckingbottom could provide that maybe if he goes back to his under 23 role or at least he's some sort of former first team coach but I look at him and I just don't feel that he steals enough confidence in the team. I don't look at him and think that's the man who's going to get Sheffield United out of the Championship at the first time of asking. Same question to Matthew, though. Can Scott Parker, is it the first time of asking, the second time of asking? I don't know, but you know what I mean. Can you go bounce straight back up, should you go down as probably expected next season? I I don't know, because I'm not too sure what sort of squad we're likely to have. I think Scott Parker fell into a good situation when we went down last time, because he had players like Alexander Mitrovic, who was a who was a good championship strike. You argue what he's like in the Premier League, but in the Championship, he's very very effective. Um, players like Tom Kearney, who was you know was still pretty good. Caviero was going to. He had some decent players. What the squad is going to look like next year, I honestly don't know. There's going to be some gutting of players, and it's what are we left with? And again, going back to you know if we have don't have the finances. What what are we able what are we going to be able to bring in to sort of supplement the squad? So, do I have faith in Scott Parker to do the job? Probably because he did he did a good job last time and he's got us 
you know, playing somewhat effective football in the Premier League, even, even if it's not wins, it's draws. You know, you turn that against the quality you're going to play in the Championship, you may think in a couple more wins. But do I have faith in the squad that he's going to be dealt with? I'm not 100% certain. So fundamentally, this is a case of right man, but a caveat of what players will he be working with come the summer. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I like it. Right, OK, obviously Fulham did lose to Chelsea at the weekend. Max, it's another impressive win for the Blues, and you'd think now that top four is edging ever closer, and I think, obviously, with it being in their own hands, it's going to take some form of collapse for them not to get in the top four, although, of course, it's not given. But next season, if you take this tutorial form in terms of that era, January onwards, they've been really, really good, no doubt about that. Can it be as good to win the Premier League next season? Um, I don't know about that. Now, uh, it would be really interesting to see the kind of Premier League table since Tuchel took over. Should have dug it out. Yes, I should have done that. That's my bad. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, but I'm yeah, I'm not not, not saying you should have done that or anything. But I'm just interested to like look 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 at that kind of in future and, and see and just kind of see how how he matches up in that time um, because. Yeah, he has been really good. And, you know, they were languishing down in 8th or ninth or 10th or 12th or wherever when uh, Lampard got sacked. And he's really kind of transformed them. They're obviously in the Champions League semi-final and have a very, very good chance of going through against um, against Real Madrid. And so, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see. I, my, my instinct is that I don't think they will be challenging for the title next season. But then again, you know, if they've obviously got the money... To, to kind of want to back um, the managers, they back Lampard um, in getting you know Havertz and Werner and before that kind of Ziyech and players like that. Um, if they kind of strengthen with maybe kind of two or three more big signings, I think they they'll be there or thereabouts. But I suspect um, Man City, um, arguably Man United, if they get a couple more signings, and I think Liverpool will maybe be back to. To, to, to more like the Liverpool that won the title when they have all of their players back as well. Matthew, at the same time, can this Tuchel era, January onwards, can it be considered the bedding in period for a proper crack at things next season? And when you consider that the pieces of the jigsaw are almost in place, it's more a case that Frank couldn't get the right tunes out of players. Do they really need to buy all that much in the summer? I think that I think there is still some quality... I... I think they, as you say, it is the betting imperial. I think there are still one or two pieces of quality to to delve with because you know even though they beat Manchester City the other week, the other week in the cup semi-finals, I think over the course of the season there's still a, there's still a few question marks in in my mind. I still think they they need a proper centre forward because I think that position's been somewhat in flux this season. You've, you've got question marks over a bunch of them. You know, Tammy Abraham's probably going to go, so raise that money, buy someone else. There's I there's some depth in there, but I think they do still need one or two players. I think Tuka's got a good system. I just think the players there, are they of the quality to match a Manchester City or a Liverpool over the course of the season? I still don't think so. So I think one or two pieces still need to be added. And Max, how important is it going to be to get a regular tune out of Kai Havertz? We saw it on Saturday. He's certainly showing more of his £70 million worth, but... The key is going to be consistency across the whole season, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much, very much. Now, he, he has kind of shown in the last couple of weeks that he is capable of being a starter for Chelsea. Um, but as you say, he just needs to do that on a bit of a more, uh, on, on a bit of a more consistent basis. Um, but he obviously has got the talent, you know, 
next season he'll have had a year of kind of getting used to the Premier League, um, you know, the, the difficulty of playing in the league and, and the demands that, that that brings. And so I think next year could be the, the, the season that he really kicks on if he manages to keep up this form. We also have to remember he's pretty young. I think he's 21. And so kind of naturally he's going to improve um, as, 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 as he plays more because he's, cause, you know, he's, he's obviously young. And then the more he gets experience, the more kind of tricks he, and, and skills that he, that he picks up as he goes along. Um, under under you know a very a very shrewd coach in Tuchel, um, he's going to improve as well. And Chelsea fans should be really excited about that. Right, it's the quick fire rounds. The protests are really eating into our time. We've got six matches to cover and about five minutes. So once again, chaps, bullet point answers will be highly favoured. Matthew West Brom Wolves. I guess Sam Allardyce. The clock is ticking. Relegation is on the way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Just a shame they couldn't have brought him in. You know, earlier in the season, he might have given them more of a fighting chance. Okay, Max, Newcastle versus Arsenal, a win for the Gunners, but really, they need a win on Thursday, and I think a win that may be quite crucial in saving Arteta's job long term. Uh, I think it could be, yes. Excellent. The South Coast now, Matthew, Brighton versus Leeds. After that performance on Saturday, surely Danny Welbeck gets a new contract at the Amex. Uh, more than likely so. Yeah, he's had a very good season, being a very effective player for them, and the fact they go on a free, even better. Burnley versus West Ham, Max, I think with that win, they're not quite over the line, but when you consider that Everton lost at the weekend, top four, no, top seven looks very likely. Yeah, I, I think that's it. And and they could well they could well get the Europa League spot. I, I you know, Champions League isn't completely out of the question, but I suspect they won't get that. Um, and they'll do well to hang on to the Europa League spot. But what a season it's been. Absolutely. Good as some part for you, Matthew. We just mentioned Everton's defeat, so let's look at Ollie Watkins very quickly. Three more seats on the England bus is only one of the 26. Yeah, I think he'll be one of the 26. Uh, interesting that he was going up against Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I think really that ba- it's really a battle between them two, between who's going to be backing up Harry Kane. And finally, Max, Southampton versus Leicester. Last week we spoke about Leicester's seven-point buffer in terms of the top four race and how they're going to need all of it. But I don't think drop points were on the menu at St Mary's. No, especially when uh, Southampton were down to 10 yes. for 80 minutes. Um, they, they they really will have wanted to have got three points from that situation. But ultimately, they're still doing um, pretty well. West Ham, who will maybe be the only team that will break into the top four, the most likely to break into the top four, are still five points behind them with four games left. So they shouldn't drop it from here. I would have to agree there. I think they might need to win one of their more tougher fixtures just to make sure, but it's in Leicester's hands and I think that's all they can ask for at this stage. Right, well done, gentlemen. We've squeezed all that in very quickly. So it is full time and that means I've just got to do the admin, which is simple as thanking my two remaining PodCord members as Carl's already departed. So, Max, a sterling performance as always. Look forward to doing it again next week. Yeah, very much so. See you next week. Matthew, thank you for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed that one. No worries. Pleasure as always. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. Also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.